So everybody, welcome back to another episode of On Air With. Thank you so much. Also, it's really sweet that I said welcome back. The episode just started. This is because I should not be allowed to intro episodes as I am not talented at uh, the hosting aspect. I just talk, honestly. We are here with Liz Nichols, wonderful history professor and just all-out brilliant woman here to, to discuss some history with us and how history tends to repeat itself and how maybe we are in a repetition <laughs> right now. So um, would, you, would you introduce yourself for yes. us? Yes, uh, Liz Nichols, as you said, and this is my third time being here with uh, the podcast, and it's super exciting. I love coming and being invited, and it's really... Um, different to kind of be the sole per- person. Usually there's a, a topic and there's some other people, so this is a cool part too. And I do teach history at Eastfield College, part of now the new one college, uh, no longer per se a system anymore. The Dallas County Community College District is now one college with seven campuses as opposed to seven, seven separately accredited colleges. Okay. Yeah, so we're in that process. Lots of change. Lots of people losing their minds over the change. So That's it's interesting. what amounts to a bureaucratic reorganization. Correct, correct. And apparently, and I didn't know this, we were in fact uh, operated in such a manner from its inception in 1975 mm-hmm. to 1993. Who knew? And so when you tell people we actually were a one college system when we first organized it. No, we weren't. Oh, okay. It just, <laughs> the history's lying. Okay. See, and that's that was a wonderful segue into what we're going to talk about yes. today. Yeah. Right? You literally are in, in history repeating itself, going back to how it was organized before. Correct. And as usual, people want to deny that the history happened the first time, so they're very confused when it very happens confused. again. Very confused. And, and always um, worried and afraid of how it's going to impact them personally. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's, I think, always um, an interesting dynamic to watch as we, you know, you talk about history being mm-hmm. cyclical. Uh, oftentimes that's what people are most afraid of is, you know, how is this going to impact me, my job, my community, where I live, how, to, how who I interact with. And so that's fear often drives, in, in my experience, a lot of the Drives the response and also encourages it to happen mm-hmm. again. Yes, exactly. And the fact that people, generally speaking, are not well-versed in knowing, you know, history, uh, breadth and depth of history people Mm -hmm. you know they know the old dead white guys i mean when i went through history that's how it was taught Mm -hmm. through the lens of old Mm -hmm. dead white guys i mean we just took the timeline of the presidents and that's how i learned history and Mm -hmm. i was like surely there's a better way to teach history than this and so that's kind of been my passion since i began this second this is my second career so i just i'm like people need to know Different shit. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Okay, okay. Well, so so on on the topic of people need to go different shit. What is historically speaking, if there's like one one factor, one moment, or one context that you wish people would apply to this moment right now? What would that be? Uh, that white supremacy, in fact, drives everything, um, and it's it, you know specifically for the United States, but actually it's. It's global, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, you look at colonialism, and I mean, it, this is white people 
wanting to create policy, implement policy, execute policy, and ensure that they stay in power. Mm -hmm. And if that means stomping on other people that don't look like them or ostracizing others that, well, oh, well. That, right. You know, that's, that's the cost. Oh, oh geez, we can't do it. Burden. Right, exactly. <laughs> we can't do it any other way. And that's another thing. I mean, you know, you might take a literature class and read that poem by Kipling, and no one really gives you any historical context to that. And so I think we just, we just don't do a very effective job nationally, um, like teaching more interdisciplinary stuff. So yeah, I teach history, but guess what? My students actually read White Man's Burden, and we talk about it in the context of American imperialism when we're in that module. Mm -hmm. So you can introduce English elements mm -hmm. while you're you know, studying history and vice versa and all sorts of, I mean, I just think students need to look at any discipline from a bunch of different um, lenses. And, and you know, we don't do that. I think that is a great point, too, in terms of literature. And maybe this is the the story girl in me, right? The story lover in me. But, like, literature is a great source of kind of diversity in history. Like, because as we've said, history books is are not. So, <laughs> like, but literature can be this great window into kind of that diverse lens of what's happening worldwide, nationwide, if, if you know, people use diversity even in literature, so. No, yeah, exactly. We, we're having those kind of conversations at, um, my campus specifically, because we're looking at and talking about diversity, um, equity, and inclusion. And so when you look at your syllabus, yeah, there's academic freedom, and everyone loves to hang their hat on that. You can't tell me what, okay, we can't tell you, but how about we have some honest and courageous conversations about what it is, what, what your body of work that you're going to expose students to, what does that look like? You know, and sure, yeah, you know, there's all of these great, um, you know, people that have written wonderful pieces, but is that really the sole canon? Shouldn't we look at things from other diverse backgrounds to give a more well-rounded picture and different voices? I mean, and then I always look at the audience. So my class is predominantly people of color, students of color, and so they're largely Latinic, Latinx, and African American, and even you know students from Africa. So am I really just going to focus on Thomas Jefferson? You know, all the white guys' writings. Yeah, we'll touch on that, but I always like to swing the narrative and look at you know responses to that through other people's voices and i just think that we don't often do a very good job of giving teachers tools to look cuz if i didn't go to school and i don't know these things like where am i supposed to find that and so i think we have to help each other and we're not always effective so if i if i can i know that we said that like uh, again like a lot of history repeating is like grounded in white supremacy can you define white supremacy for people that don't know I mean, I think for me, white supremacy is this idea, first of all, we have to understand that the construct of race was something that was very intentionally created. Yes. So if you look at prior to the 18th century, there was no, uh, you know, white people, black people, yellow, you know, we didn't use colors mm -hmm. <laughs> to, you know, identify people. That's very much 
a construct um, that occurred in the American colonies. Mm -hmm. But for me, white supremacy is that. It's a, it's a construct. It's a social and economic um, construct to ensure that people that were deemed or classified as white are able to control everything. Yeah. The, the, the economic, social, the media, all of that, they can control that. And so they become the status quo and any challenge to that becomes problematic. So how do you see them trying to, to establish that control or maintain that control today? Oh, that's like a whole other podcast. I know, I know. So please explain how whiteness operates in America. Go. No. Yeah, exactly. But, we don't but, have enough time for that. Is it, are there any like particularly obvious or particularly major things that you see happening? And again, I know like this echoes, we try not to be political. Yeah, but. I mean, I kind of like for this, uh, you know, Janelle and I were having some conversations offline and just, you know, how we might do this. And I just threw out a name. I just said, I forget the question she asked, but I threw out like William Appleman Williams, who's, you know, students, the everyday person's going to be like, who, what, and what mother named her child, you know, William. <laughs> William Williams. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the reason why I, I mentioned him is because if we taught history more through a narrative of historiography, mm -hmm. so a historiography being the um, history of history, so studying kind of how narratives change. Instead of saying, okay, class, today we're going to talk about George Washington and then work our way to, you know, President Obama, um, I think students would, one, like history more well, than they yeah. do now because what we tend to do is force students to memorize dates that Google is more than able to handle for us. Maybe if we looked at it through historiography, so getting back to you know, why I chose William Appleman Williams was because he did this thing with historiography and kind of um, diverted, uh, deviated from this, the historical path in looking at American uh, foreign policy. Because what we do outside of our borders, we've already done inside the borders. Uh, yes. we, we've already, genocide, it, we it happened first within the borders, and I'm like, oh, we're done here, now now, kind of the next thing. And we had a chance to not be imperialistic and empire building, and we didn't choose that route. I've never thought about it like that. Yeah, everything has America toppled, you know, gotten rid of leaders they didn't like in America. Well, then they got rid of leaders they didn't like outside of America. Exactly. Shocker. Yeah, and, and any perceptions of the other. Cause, so I kind of take a, this tact of, historically speaking, we tend to look at people that aren't within this white paradigm mm -hmm. as the other. People of color, people in Asian countries, anyone that's not perceived as white gets the other and there's, oh, you've got problems, we're gonna help and fix you. It's very paternalistic, it's very problematic. But we started it first within our own border, so. I had a question, and I don't really know exactly how relevant it is to um, repeating history, but it's my show, so I'm gonna do it anyway. So no, okay, so it's, it kind of makes sense, but it kind of doesn't, but follow me here. So I'm gonna read this because I don't remember this. Um, but 
in the Declaration of Independence. There's a section, I sent this to you, and before I even read it, I just want you guys to know, so Liz and I talk a lot on Facebook Messenger, yes. and so I sent this message to her, and she said, woo, child. <laughs> Amen. Oh, I'm excited. <laughs> okay, so um, in the Declaration of Independence, there's a section, and it says that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Now, the reason that I really was drawn to that is because it not only says that we have the power, but it charges us to alter it. Um, and I am interested to know in what ways, like historically, have we done that? And maybe in what ways specifically relating to social justice and history itself, are we failing at that in this moment? Social justice movements are always fraught with a mixture of fear and denigration because these movements are trying to turn the status quo topsy-turvy. And that usually never is something that, of course, the people that occupy that space of status quo want. So, you know, you look at the American Revolution. I tend to be a little more cynical with things. And so I tell my students, so you have these white guys that don't want to be taxed. They want representation, and that sounds wonderful and lovely, and there are truths to that. But when it all was said and done, they wanted to be able to make money. Right. And and that's what it's uh, primarily about. So this whole idea of consent of governed, um, you know, there was a time when the only people that could vote were white people, white mm -hmm. men, Mm -hmm. with property. Mm -hmm. So they only had the power. So we do, it's a kind of, to me, this ebb and flow. You know, sometimes you see an expansion of the electorate and, and the ability to be involved, and other times you see it constrict. And I think currently we're in a time where, where it's under assault and there's this constriction through, you know, mm -hmm. like I, I read an article in Dallas alone, there were over 700 polling places that ha were closed. So at TSU in Houston, you have people waiting seven hours to vote yeah. or in other locations. That's, I read, someone tweeted this. So that's in effect indirectly a poll tax. Who, who can stay yes. in line for seven hours yeah. if you have a job? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, so this is very much done to ensure that certain groups of people don't get out and vote. So that's one. And then you have extreme gerrymandering, which... Uh, Texas is notorious for, and Ben Franklin, and uh, it's a paraphrase, but he had a great quote because he thought this whole idea of just having um, a certain group be able to vote and have it hinged upon property was ludicrous. Um, and he said something like, so if I am a white guy and I own a cow on Tuesday and I'm able to vote, because I own a cow, that's my property. So I go to sleep, the cow gets sick and dies. On Wednesday, I can't vote. <laughs> because my property has na is now deceased. Yeah. Right. You know, and so he's like, that's, a, that's a, an ignorant uh, thing to hinge that um, 
right. Yeah. You know, but the the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, it's silent on is that a, we say it's a right, but nowhere is that listed. True. That it's a right. So I think now we're in this time where we're constricting the right, and it's primarily uh, the white establishment and status quo because they they see the landscape of the country changing. It, yeah. You know, by whatever the date is, 2052, it's going to be predominantly people of color, largely Latinx because of our policies in Latin America, our border with Mexico, a number right. of things. I always ha- I show part of it because it's kind of long, but uh, Henry Gonzalez wrote a book, uh, Harvest of Empire, and there is a documentary that accompanies the book. Um, and I haven't read the text, but the documentary, Harvest of Empire, is amazing. I've tweeted it a number of times when I read ignorant things on, <laughs> on Twitter <laughs> or, or even Facebook. I'm like, oh, yeah, well, you might want to, you know, take a look at this. And I provide the link for them. I love so they it. Won't, because our policies in Latin America it explains largely why these populations seek to come into the United States. And it has a lot to do with America's foreign policy in those countries. So, Since we insist on destabilizing every country in Latin America, except the ones that will like slavishly be devoted to America. Well, and even that, if you look at like... Um, Puerto Rico, it, you know, it's not a state, but it's a protectorate, a commonwealth. And at first, you know, it, it, be, it came into America's sphere of influence in 1898, the last major war we had with Spain. But the, the people of the island weren't citizens until World War I broke out. And the government did that because they wanted, they needed, oh, wow. they needed bodies. Yeah. Wow. So, and that happens frequently where citizenship is awarded because we want something for you. You You know, in Mexico, we're like, please, you know, Mexican government, please send your people during World War II, the Bracero program. We need them to pick, you know, all of the fruits and vegetables. Our men are out working. And the Mexican government, they were like, yeah, no, we've done that before. And you treat our people like crap. So (laughs) we're we're not going to send them. And in fact, Texas was needed these laborers so bad that they're like, what do we need to do? And they're like, well, you can't treat us like you treat your African-American citizens, for starters. And so that's when in Texas, Mexicans were denoted on the census as being Caucasian. What? Stop. What? See, this is why we asked her to come in. This right here. This moment right here. This moment right here. Okay, so stop, hold on, basically, pause. I need a they moment. needed Mexican labor so bad that Mexicans were awarded whiteness. Right. And so they now when they... Tri- they bestowed whiteness upon them. Oh, fine. I guess we'll make you white. So, Shoot. like, come work. Exactly. Because you can go to Brownsville. There are signs all throughout South Texas, outside of establishments, restaurants, and whatnot, that would say, you know, no Negroes, no dogs, and then the last line is no Mexicans. So, and that explains, if you know that about the history, that explains the fractured relationship that African-Americans and um, Mexicans in particular, but I would argue Latinx 
altogether have yeah. with each other. Because if you, if I'm Mexican and I see how you treat African American people, do I want to be treated as a second class citizen? Right. No. So when you bestow citizenship and whiteness to me, I'm like, cool. Now I'm not going to be treated yep. like you treat. And so when the civil rights movement happens in the 50s, I call it the modern civil rights movement because I think once slaves realize, African people realize, oh shit, we're in trouble. Yeah. Right. There, you have a civil rights movement yeah. there because has been people, a non-stop right, civil rights right, movement. trying to find freedom. But you know, so I think when you know people. African Americans say they're brown too. Why won't they just if we all would bind together? Well, that was very intentionally fractured. Well, so, oh wait. Well, I just want like like I mean that's the exact same logic as in the invention of the white race. He talks about right. that with Irish people. Right. Like the reason this line was drawn to obstruct solidarity. The whole point of this line is so that the black people can stay on the very bottom. And then, like, some poor, be it poor white people, poor Mexican people, whatever, mm -hmm. will be kind of in the middle so that y'all don't all get beat up on. And then the white people can stay on top. The real white people. The, not in quotations, the real white. But, okay, so, but going back to um, the Asian American Experience episode that we recorded recently, one of the things that they talked about was the kind of the creation of the model minority as a way to pit, of course, Asians, um, Asian Americans right. against black Americans. As a way As of, a way of, again, subverting unity. You look a unity. little too different for us to pretend that you're white. So we're going to say you're the perfect kind of not white. Right. But it sounds like, <laughs> it sounds like it's, it's very similar. Like it, there, which also, I feel some type of way. Like, dang, can we ever get it? I mean, like, I'm not trying to oppress anybody, but dang, like, everything is against. Well, but then you get into, like, yeah, nine times out of ten, black people are on the bottom. And I promise I'm going to shut up because you're the historian. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes, like, there are ways, particularly in cultural production, yeah, where sure. black people are rewarded and for other sure. minorities are not. So that's no, basically no, no. they it's just want sure. all of us to keep right. fighting. We're just but they Anyone want us, but, but they them. want us right. They want us to keep fighting each other is the thing. And I would argue, so what? You you gave me this whiteness and I'll check that Caucasian box right. in on the census, but you know, no one is policing Brownsville. The sign stays. Uh, okay. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The sign stays just like I mean, it was years after, you know, the Civil Rights Act of sixty four, the Voting Rights Act of sixty five, and you still have, you know, particularly rural areas that are like, Yeah, we, we don't care what you've passed. Mm. You know, Eisenhower, not known for his civil rights record <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. Right. But one thing he said that I think is very accurate is that you cannot legislate people's hearts. You know, mm -hmm. so just because you've passed a law doesn't mean people that inherently believed in their superiority because of the color of their skin just woke up and said, oh, okay, well, now I love y'all. Let's We're going to go to church together, and you can date my daughter. No. Yeah. You can't date my daughter, and you can't come to church with me. You know, and so that's – you have to – that's why I think it just takes so long for – for us to see change. I believe people inherently can change mm -hmm. if that's what you want to do. Yeah, yeah, and I just, and I even, and I cringe because I use it too, but I hate the term minorities mm -hmm. because it's pejorative. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I just like, you know, if you take all the people in the whole world, the people of color outnumber 
True. Yeah. So how is it that people of color are the minority? You know, and it's just even if you look at the evolution of what term is used to denote black people. Like, you know, my father-in-law, when I was married, he was just like, yeah, don't call me African-American. Right. He just be, And that was more generational. He mm-hmm. was like, you know, Negro, you know, I'm a Negro. Yep. Yes, sir. Yes. yes you're, yeah. You know, I'm not going to argue with you, but that term has evolved. Yeah. And, and have the people themselves had the power? Usually it's like the white power structure telling, this is your new name now. <sighs> True. You don't even give people in the group agency mm-hmm. to talk about what they want to be called. Well, and that, and that is a really good point, and it's part of the reason why. So when I started, you know, okay, I'm going to go back to school, and I'm going to, you know, major in history, minor in government, blah, 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 and I'm going to teach. Um, and it Originally, I wasn't like, and I want to focus on African-American history. It was me getting involved in the, in the literature, the historiography, that I was like, well, hell, where's the, where's the story, where's the historiography for African-American history? And realizing that the reason why there are such courses, African-American studies, history, however you coin it, is because it's not part of it's not woven into the narrative. It's yes. a nice transition, right? Yes. Because you well, we were talking about white supremacy, and mm-hmm. I, I really wanted to skip straight there. Like they literally did a whole project to essentially say America, and correct me if I'm wrong, right? Like part of the impetus behind the 1619 project, which was done by the New York Times, a bunch of essays and poetry and articles and all sorts of media were created around the idea that America's true founding, or America as we know it, was not founded in 1776 with the Declaration of Independence, but rather in 1619 when the first enslaved Africans arrived uh, in the Americas, or in America. And see, and that's not even accurate. See? So, because because winners write the history, and, um, you know, British citizenry won Mm-hmm. out in what is considered North America, mm-hmm. right, okay? So there were Africans in the Americas before 1619. 1619 just denotes the first time Africans arrive at a British colony. The mm. British were the last European yeah. nation to get involved in, you know, um, the whole colonization you know, in the True. in the New World, so because Saint Augustine in Florida is the is the oldest city in America in what's in America. I, I use it, but North it really America, should be yeah. the United States, yeah. yes. right? Yeah, because you thank know, you. That's because that's problem. very important. To it me. is, yeah. Be, because like my mom lived in Costa Rica for a long time, and she said, "Yeah, in Costa Rica, they don't call it." America. They say, you know, Estados Unidos, because right. they're like, we're part of Central of America. America. Yeah. Right. You have all of this, yeah. and so this that hubris of who gets to who gets to own that the name, which is the way that I felt in Colombia, and I think that that really, the longer I was around people in Colombia, they, they were like, I like, we're Americans too. Yeah, and so, and I make sure of like students, they do a, a little activity, a discussion board on St. Augustine. And it's so amazing because they do this activity and yet if I do a test question that deals with Jamestown, they'll often say, this was the first 
colony in a no 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 because no, saint <laughs> augustine was around in the 16th century and wow. they had african slaves in saint augustine oh wow and some would argue that you know in the same way people migrated and used the bear uh the, the bering strait mm -hmm. that there were probably africans here in that area, they just weren't enslaved. Right. And so I think that's important. We tend to, all American history tends to focus on slavery, and there was lots going on before that. So aside from that, how do we, what do we think about the 1619 Project? I, I think it's fabulous. I think it's well done. I've tinkered with it some. I tried to integrate it just in my African-American history class, and I just, I need to fo I need to play with it some more, but yeah. I just had them use kind of like the interactive part because, so that they would get some idea of the numbers and, and mm -hmm. that it, in fact, is a numbers game mm -hmm. and how best we can navigate um, the use of that. So um, I, I think it's it's an amazing resource, yeah. and it has a lot of different components. So if you just want to look at the, the data of people being held in pens in, on the west coast of Africa, you can just do that, or you can shift and kind of look at what was going on just in the United States and how slavery transformed. Because here's the thing, slavery has existed. It becomes onerous and people don't seem to understand is just the horror of, of what Americans developed. It was very different than Greeks, Romans. Yes. Even in Africa itself, people don't understand slavery existed yes. there, but it, you know, one, it wasn't hereditary. And it mm. couldn't be hereditary because if you saw the child of a slave, you wouldn't know they were the child of yeah. a slave. Yeah, it just, and it could be from war or debts, you know, that you had, or you committed a crime and you're gonna, you know, have that, but your humanity was not stripped from you. Yeah. And that's something that is totally different under chattel slavery. Slavery in you know the the colonies and then you know the United States. Right. So no, I think it's an amazing um, resource. Um, it's important for framing the discussion along the topics of race, uh, economics, racism, equity, all mm -hmm. of that. And it pisses people off. So I follow Nicole. Um, I love her. I do too. I love her. Ida Bay Wales on, on, on Twitter. And people, I mean, I think there's a whole group and I can't remember oh, to be what they That's Nicole Hannah Jones yes. is, the, is the lead of the 1619 Project. Also, I believe like a MacArthur Grant winner. Yes, yes, she's All amazing. All around just bad, just flawless. I mean, reading yeah. her, t following her on Twitter is like taking a history class. Yes. And people are, there are groups of people that are totally upset with 1619. And there, it's it's garnered a lot of criticism, yes. and I'm, it's not a perfect resource, sure. but what is right? That's and what so I was say. What is actually thing. perfect? But because it deals primarily with African and African American history, people want to pick it apart and make it not valuable or relevant because it doesn't. It's not perfection. You know, yeah. and so it, they use it as an easy target, I think, to, you know, say, and it gets back to that whole thing. Well, why are we still talking about this and studying? Well, hell, you keep killing, mm -hmm. the, you know, right. African-American people that are unarmed. You keep putting them to death, mm -hmm. you know. As the case may be. Exactly. Just five seconds right. ago. So, you know, yeah, it's still important because you have to know all of that to understand why it's still going on today. And also, I guess, why a system permits it to happen. 
Yes. Because, like, it's really easy to be like, oh, this is just how the system works. Like, mm-hmm. this, is, this is a justice system. You're like, no. Well, and people love to say, well, 1619, the first slaves. In all actuality, um, for one, there were roughly originally 300 people on that ship, and I forget the ship's name. And by the time it got to Jamestown, the Virginia coast, there was only 20 left. So that gives you some inkling of how many people lost their lives. John Rolfe, he purchases them from this Dutch the Dutch ship, uh-huh. and by all accounts, they weren't slaves like we know slaves to have mm-hmm. been. Mm-hmm. They were more like indentured servants. Like a lot of the white people were. Right, exactly. And so it's interesting to watch the evolution of law um, in Virginia in particular change. Yes. And so there's this case that kind of is a defining moment of this is when we can say mm, we're heading towards race slavery, so mm-hmm. someone's skin color. It's John Punch. So he was an indentured servant, a uh, black man, and there were white men that he worked with, indentured servants. They don't like how they're being treated because the, that system itself was uneven as well. So they run away. Black man, John Punch, white friends, they run away. They get caught. They go to um, before the the judge, and there's no law that says, you know, this is what punishment has to be meted out. Um, they add just some years to the white indentured servants' time as yes. punishment. But for John Punch, the black man, he gets indentured for life, his entire life. And there was nowhere that said, that because he was black, he had to be indentured for life. But that's what's given, and it kind of begins to um, codify in law that now it's going to be for life. It's also going to be based on a um, black woman's status, which goes totally against the hierarchy or how it works in British law, right? Right, because right. everything you have is kids. primogeniture. Right. Whatever the, the, the status of the father is the status of the child. Yeah. Exactly, and so now you change that right. in order to ensure that you have a perpetual labor force. And so now you pass the burden of freedom or enslavement to a black woman, which that could be a whole yeah. topic in and of itself. Well, and it also, I mean, the way that it created this whole thing of... A, we're going to base it on the status of the mother so that we can continue to let white men rape with impunity, because that's yeah. really what it was. But also, then the way that that creates or contributes to this whole cult of white womanhood mm-hmm. and how that has to be, because, oh no, if, a white, if this brown baby comes out of a white woman, now, in theory, that baby is white, but also, oh no, we can never allow the sex. Like, yeah. Creates an economic layer on top of the social and political and cultural layers of why it is so important that we must always keep the precious white woman far, far away from all these brown people. Right. And then also, on t- not only that, and that's a great point that you made, but also because you have the master raping black women, black slaves, and then, pre- I mean, you now have children that are running around that are yours. And 
they have now they're slaves because they can't be a part of your family. They can't possibly, you know, go legally and say, once you've died, I get half of the plantation. We got to right. stomp all that down. Which otherwise they would be entitled to some measure. Correct, correct. But under under laws. And so there's a whole, you can, it's an easy Google search, like just slave laws in Virginia. And it'll give it to you chronologically, kind of just, and you can see you know, with each passing year, decade, how the law becomes much more onerous um, and it's much more difficult for enslaved people to navigate out of that um, system. Well, and I think that that's also, in, tar- in talking about how history repeats itself, then that explains how people um, who how black men or even brown men, just not even just black men, but brown men um, are sentenced more for certain crimes right. versus Same others. Deal. Like it's yes. it, like like when you're looking at what happened, you know, last week, yesterday or, or what have you, that explains like the way that the law kind of developed to kind of prop that up. And, we and still, saying it's legal. We still right. have people being essentially enslaved for life yeah. as punishment for crimes. Like, I mean, you, you hear about all the, the firefighters in California who are fighting fires for pennies. And pennies that ultimately, like, if you look at the amount of prison debt that they make people take on, the little money you earn from prison labor is, like, totally canceled out. So it really is working for... Really, it's it's not even working for free. It's working for negative money. Right. So can you talk about that 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 narrowing and broadening of civil rights and how that's happened so much? Henry Louis Gates Jr. Uh, Skip um, did a great uh, two DVD set on the era of Reconstruction. Yeah. So that's that moment right after the Civil War, eighteen sixty five. And there's a distinct time that we can say this is when it ended, 1877. But in that time period, there was a lot of activity. So you had the Civil Rights Act of 1866 that was passed that basically is just like the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It's the exact thing. And And so you have the election of black men to... You know, Congress, yeah. that yeah. they're in the Senate, they're in the House. It was like a really big boom that I think that people forget about. Huge. South Carolina, you know, if you watch the second half of D.W. Griffith's, what, what is I Birth tried? of a Nation? Yes, Birth of a Nation, you know, and I, I show bits, clips of it, and it has this, oh, the poor white people were being overrun by the majority of blacks in South Carolina. And, you know, people are like, well, surely that wasn't true. Well, no. Black people always outnumbered the whites in South Carolina. So it stands to reason that once black men got the right to vote with the 15th Amendment, they They went out and voted and they voted for, you know, people that looked like them. Um, And so when all of that becomes problematic, and here it is, here's the thing. People like to blame and lay everything at the feet of southern states and their legislature. And trust me, there's plenty for them to bear. But at the end of the day, it was the federal government that lost the will to ensure that Reconstruction policies and legislation actually were maintained. Yeah. How then do we start to dismantle these things? Like, I feel like the easy answer is like the first step is to seek out this information and understand it. But like, what do we do with the information once we get it? Like, how do we do that? Gosh. <laughs> uh, Liz, fix our history. Right. <laughs> 
public education was never designed to make us free thinkers and question and be creative in solutions. Mm -hmm. Public education was designed to, in fact, create an obedient, patriotic citizenry Mm -hmm. that would not say, you shouldn't do that, that's wrong, or what you did 100 years ago was wrong. That's Mm -hmm. not the purpose of public education. So right after the revolution, what is a woman's role? Because some women, in fact, you know, their husbands are away. They are running the shop. They are running the farm. So it mm-hmm. empowers women. And this is a great way to end because today is International it is. Women's Day. Is that, you know, and so women now, the husbands come home. And this happens after every war. Yep. You know, Rosie the Riveter, the whole yep. thing. Okay, thanks, sweetie. Go back to the house. Bake pies. Take off your shoes. Have more baby, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And so men realize that as early as 17, 1783. And they're like, okay, how do we how do we navigate? Some of these chicks actually wanna like be part of the government. Yeah. We can't have that. And they're like, oh, Republican motherhood. Your your role is so important, dear. So because and because of that, we're going to open up female seminaries, all female schools, and you're not going to school for personal enrichment or learning. You're going to school so that you can better indoctrinate your kids <laughs> to be <laughs> obedient, patriotic citizens. Yeah. It's not for you. I mean, th- we've gotten better. It's progressed, you know, where women, in fact, go to school now, you know, for self-fulfillment, to, you know, be... Yeah. Uh, a part of the uh, a career, yeah. but that's not what it was intended. And so I would argue that public education has lagged way behind. Wow. And there's all sorts of problems that need to be fixed. You know, it's interesting to think of public education as unfinished business in the same way as we think of civil rights as unfinished business and we think of policing as unfinished business. Also, like yeah, public all education. of those, all of those components need champions, and the paradigm has to be turned on its head because it's not working for all of us. Um, it's very inequitable, and until we fix those things, we're going to continue to have the um, challenges that we face today, which continues to make history cyclical. Hmm. Oh, and she even ended on she- theme. Listen, her podcast gonna be fire. If y'all ain't following now, right. get your tickets. Wait, <laughs> drop, tickets. drop, like drop the social media. Like, what's the social media handles? How do we follow you? How do we hear more from you? You can find me on Twitter, uh, and my handle is Latina Lizzie, eight. On Facebook, I can be found at Liz Montalvo, M O N T A L V O. And on Instagram, it's Latina Lizzie Pooh. So follow me. I tend not to po- post a lot of this, but well, so yeah, follow. This has been great. Like, honestly. Very great. This is, and, and in fairness, we've been talking. You didn't know, but we've been talking. We were like, we need to have her back on the show. Oh, yeah, for like a long time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm honored. I love I love coming here and just the organic conversations and so yeah this is cool I come back anytime I'm a talker as you can tell so, so. thanks so much for coming in thank uh, you so much for having me we are gonna get out of here everybody listening thanks so much for listening don't be afraid to tell your story we'll see you next episode.
Hey guys, there's so much more to this episode. There are so many more little tidbits and great stories, and we want to remind you that you can get the full unedited episode as a $10 patron on our Echoes Media Patreon. Just go to Patreon, spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and search for Echoes Media. We also have a monthly $5 level, and you can always pay what you can. Every little bit helps us continue to create great content, and especially in the new normal during and post-coronavirus, your support helps to provide new digital ways to keep you engaged and in the fight for social justice and equality. Shout out to our first two patrons, Wendy Coster and Weddings by Pharrell's Daughter, found on Instagram at Weddings by FD. As always, don't be afraid to tell your story and we'll see you next episode.